to Is It Halloween Yet? Episode 18, a spooky little podcast where we talk about all things horror and ask, Is it Halloween yet? I'm afraid not, ghouls, ghosts, and goblins. It's 296 days until Halloween. I'm your ghost dispenser. Let's see what we have on the slab this week. We're going to do a little catch up on the most important news from the last couple weeks, and then we're going to start in on our Texas Chainsaw Massacre Marathon with the one that started it all, 1974's Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Let's get into the news. in the last couple months, so let's see what horror games we can slice and dice our way through in 2022. Therapist Desmond Wales and the patients of Milton Haven are headed to Switch. In Sound Mind by developer We Create Stuff launched on PC, PS5, and Xbox Series this fall. In this psychological th- horror, you explore the minds of your patients to figure out what's happening in the town before you go mad. It's headed to Switch sometime in the early part of this year, so that'll be great for Switch players. Switch is getting a lot of really great horror games, which I think is cool because I like having horror games on the go for whatever reason. The Geiger-inspired nightmare fuel Scorn is being delayed till October of 2022. The game was supposed to be out in late 2021 last we heard, but the developers took to Kickstarter to talk about the challenges of development from the intense scope to the scrapping of large chunks of the game that had been completed before 2018. It had been scrapped completely or were being severely reworked. In In the update, they state, it's about making what we want it to be and not releasing it just because we gave some arbitrary release state. If it's not ready, then it's not ready. In a second Kickstarter update, they said, we want to ensure Scorn is the best game it can be. This additional time will allow the team to make sure the vision for Scorn comes to life in all of its spine-chilling, nightmarish glory. We know that that means this may means a longer wait, especially for our fantastic Kickstarter community who have been with us since the very beginning, but we're committed to making Scorn the best experience possible for our players. Scorn will be out in October, on PC and Xbox series. Martha is Dead has been delayed till February 24th, 2022. Carnacle Games let us know that the on the PS5 version of the game, the system will use the DualSense control to give the psychological thriller more tension. That being said, you can get Martha is Dead on all platforms. PlayStation, PlayStation 4, Xbox Series, and Xbox One. Alan Wake 2 is real and headed your way in 2023. After receiving... After the well-received Alan Wake remastered launched earlier this year, Remedy finally revealed at the Game Awards that Alan Wake 2 is well into development, and it will be headed to the Epic Games Store, PS5, and Xbox Series in 2023. Dead by Daylight gave us a sneak peek of things ahead by letting us know that famed Japanese horror movie Ringu is coming to the game. They are quick to point out that it's from the original story, so don't get your hopes up about anything from the 2020... not 2020, the 2002... American remake. So you'll have to get ready for Sadako to terrorize the fog. Dead by Daylight also made news this week when they removed the Leatherface cosmetic from the game. The cannibal, as Leatherface is known, could earn different skin cosmetics of the four original survivors of the game. If a player sacrificed that survivor 25 times, the issue is, is that one of the original survivors is a awesome black woman named Claudette Morel. As in so many games communities, racists took a cool mechanic and turned it in a way to racially attack and harass black players, especially black Dead by Daylight streamers. So behavior, finally, 
after years of marginalized people asking for this to be removed, have removed all masks from the game. Honestly, I'm relieved to see them do this. If I'm completely honest, I scrapped the possibility of Leatherface Dead by Daylight streams during these two months of Texas Chainsaw Massacre shows because I felt strongly that in the form where a character could use to be to hurt people the way people were, it wasn't worth highlighting that character. But he's out now, the masks are gone, and maybe we'll do some Dead by Daylight Leatherface. I haven't really played him that much, so that would be fun. Let me know. Speaking of Leatherface, the Game Awards' most hype announcement for me was the fact that beloved asymmetrical horror publisher Gun Media would be taking on the Texas Chainsaw Massacre license. The publisher is tapping Sumo Nottingham for the development. We also got news that the beloved stuntman and everyone's favorite Jason, Kane Hodder, will be playing Leatherface. His work on Gun Media's Friday the 13th the game was really key to making that game feel like a Friday movie. We also know that Leatherface won't be the only member of the family we'll get to play as, as both the cook and the hitchhiker are in the game at launch, and there'll be several new game-exclusive family members. Uh, that's going to give this game a little bit more dimension than Friday the 13th, and I am all for it. Uh, we don't have a release date, but I would bet that it's this year. Moving on to TV news. M. Night Shyamalan's Servant Season 3 is headed to Apple TV Plus at the end of the month on January 31st. We also learned that the show would be renewed for its fourth and final season. But don't be sad, it's not getting cancelled. Uh, Shyamalan took to Twitter saying he had sketched out the whole story and that it was 40 episodes and he never knew if he would get to, get to the end of the 40 episodes, but it looks like we're getting the entire servant story as M. Night Shyamalan wanted. Stranger Things season four will be headed to our TVs this summer. I'm apprehensive about this season. I really don't know if I'm going to get on board with the whole Hopper being in Russia storyline that they've set up, but I'm excited to see horror icon Robert England show up. Everybody loves Freddy. I can't wait to see what kind of crazy person he's going to play on Stranger Things. Agatha Harkness is getting her own Disney Plus show. Agatha, the House of Harkness, will be headed to your eyeballs soon. We really don't have much more information than that, but I can't wait to see Katherine Hahn's Agatha again. Chucky, after a fantastic and shocking season of television on sci-fi, is coming back for a season two this fall. If you haven't watched Chucky, you need to go correct the error of your ways. It was so good. I can't wait to see, especially with the cliffhangery kind of ending they gave us in season one. I can't see where season, can't wait to see where season two is headed. Mike Flanagan's Edgar Allan Poe Netflix series, The Fall of the House of Ushers cast has started to be announced. And we've got returning favorites like Henry Thomas, Tinaya Miller, Ruhal, Ruhal Kohli, and Carly Giugano, and Kate Siegel. They will also include heavy hitting newcomers to the Flanagan Ensemble, with both Frank Latelia and Mark Hamill joining the cast. Moving on to the big screen, a three and a half hour director's cut of George Romero's 1977 horror film Martin has been found. Thanks to the fine folks at Second Sight Film, it looks like we'll be getting a 4K res restoration of the film sometime early this year. I cannot wait to see Romero's preferred cut of the film. I may be in the minority of people who are excited to see the remake of the South Korean zombie fic Train to Busan. I'm a huge fan of the Thai filmmaker Timo Jajando, who's been tapped to direct. A deadline is reporting that the American remake could be set in New York and have the title Last Train to New York. Seriously, if you want to know why I'm so jacked to see this story through this specific filmmaker's eyes, go watch his film May the Devil Take You. You'll have plenty of time, as it looks like The Last Train to New York won't be hitting theaters until April 21st, 2023. 
More director's cuts are headed our way, it seems. 30 minutes of never-before-seen footage have been found for the 1985 consumerist takedown horror flick, The Stuff. The print came from the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, and hopefully Denver Film, who made the discovery, can get this print into the hands of someone who can get it to us all. Bruce Campbell is opening up about this year's Evil Dead Rising in an interview with BlairWitch.de. The film will be different, he says. This one's darker. This one's pretty serious. It's got good, strong performances. It's a single mom who now has to deal with this book. And these days, it's more about the book. The book gets around, handed around, passed around. People try to get rid of it. They try to bury it. They try to destroy it. And they really can't. So this book just keeps popping up. So it's just another story of what happens if the book appears in this particular group of people's lives and how that intersects. Campbell goes on to talk about how Evil Dead Rises director Lee Cronin is a very serious man. He's very serious director. He's a very atmospheric director and it's going to be really good. I've seen a rough cut of it and it has all the components that we need. It just needed like anything. It has to be tightened, but we're in really good shape and we've let him have a lot of creative leeway, but the basics stay the same. The book, the possession, the rules of how you get rid of them. Every new hero or heroine has to learn how to dispel the evil. But this is family. It's not the same at the end of the movie. They're gutted. The whole family is destroyed. These people get possessed. Brothers, sisters, sons, daughters. It's a family affair. This one is all about a family. And they're related in this one. And it makes you think the possession and the killing of your siblings and things like that is even harder. We still don't have a release date for this yet, but we know that it's headed this way, our way sometime this year. Dracula's henchman solo film, Renfield, has finally got its Count Dracula. We learned that everybody's be favorite beloved weirdo, Nicolas Cage, will be playing the Dark Count. This Renfield project was brought to life by Robert Kirkman and Chris... Chris McKay, they have previously announced that Nicholas Holt will be tapped to play the titular character. We are moving ever closer to seeing the next Jordan Peele flick, Nope. It has completed filming. The film we found out was shot on Kodak film, including 65mm IMAX form, so that gets me excited to see what Peele thought he needed to use that grand of a film stock to, to, uh, portray in this film. We don't know really a whole lot about it, but we do know that it'll be hitting theaters on July 22nd, so I would bet we will see a trailer any day now. John Legend is dipping his toe into the horror space with Universal's new adaptation of The Phantom of the Opera. This new film will be a modern take that takes place not in the famed catacombs of the Paris Opera House, but will instead haunt New Orleans, but instead will haunt New Orleans nightlife. I'm excited to see where this goes, and I think that a fresh take on this story that has been pretty boxed in by its infamous musical adaptation is what we need. Phantom of the Opera really has been boxed in for so long. It is a period piece, it, but it has all these elements of like dark gothic romantic horror that I feel like someone could play with in a new way. So I'm very interested to see where this adaptation is going to go. The National Film Registry has a new killer entry. The 1984 beloved classic Nightmare on Elm Street has been added to the list this year, a list that the library finds culturally, historic, or aesthetically significant. This is such a boost to 80s horror and its effects on the film industry, and now we know that the film will be preserved for generations to come. In what I think is the correct move, Scott Derrickson's horror flick The Black Phone is moving to summer from its February fourth release date. And right now with the rise of Omicron, it's just irresponsible for studios and directors to be releasing a film with no prestige VOD option. 
We've seen the sharpest rise in infections during this entire pandemic, and if studios don't think that budgets can be recouped or directors think that they need the quote-unquote theatrical experience, then they should be delaying their film. It's been sad to watch hyped horror films like Antlers and The Night House be sent out to theatrically only releases to die. That being said, the Black Phone will be hitting theaters on June 24th. We got our first look at the Viking revenge tale, The Northman. It looks like all the blood and dark vengeance we have come to expect from Robert Eggers. This star-studded blood-soaked cast will be heading to theaters on April 22nd, and this will be the end of the coverage of this film until I see it. And in our last bit of news for this week, we saw some movement on the Friday the 13th case. What looks like good news at first glance is Sean Cunningham has not filed a motion to the U.S. Supreme Court. As a court watcher, I am a bit sad we won't get to hear the justices discuss Jason Voorhees. That means, as it stands, Victor Miller has the rights to his U.S. screenplay. That is objectively good news. What gets complicated and shitty for fans is how that ruling would affect future projects going forward. Larry Zinner, who's been keeping Twitter updated, tweeted out, can Sean and Victor just make their own separate movies? Not really, because Victor only owns the rights in the U.S. and the only and only to the first script, and Sean owns adult hockey mask wearing Jason, but can't you legally use him in a movie without Victor's permission. It's complicated. The fact that these two men would have to come to some sort of agreement after the years of bitter legal battles we've seen between them makes me feel like we are not getting a movie or anything anytime soon. And the real losers to this outcome are the fans. Now it's time to get on to the movie of the week, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Texas Chainsaw Massacre and I have a very complicated history. It's a movie that I enjoy after the fact, but a movie I don't really enjoy watching. And it's not for the reasons that many people cite. I don't find it gory or triggering. The lack of gore and the heavy reliance on implied gore is one of the things I actually love about the film. I just feel like it has very strange pacing, which I will get into. I also feel like Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a film that horror fans feel like should get more respect but don't appreciate how challenging the work is to consume. I have for some time called Texas Chainsaw Massacre horror movie hard mode. It's not only the grisly and bizarre styling and cinematography of the film that's hard for modern audiences to get into. It's the film's deep and rich allegory that set it apart from so many other films in the genre at that time. The film is more art house film than horror movie and it clearly suffers from some pitfalls of the first director specifically in pacing. This time watching through I really was intrigued by that pacing, the cadence of the kills specifically. I also feel like as I get older and more of the production and how like terrible and nightmarish it was gets revealed, uh, the less I find it enjoyable. I don't need people to like kill themselves and like hurt themselves for their art. So let's get into the details of the film. As you all know, it was directed by Toby Hooper. It was written by Kim Kendall and Toby Hooper. It was produced for about $140,000, which would be about $700,000 if you adjusted that for inflation. Hooper has cited that the lie in the opening crawl was intentional that the film took great inspiration from real-life serial killers Ed Gein and Elmer Wayne Henley, but the story was created and not true. He says that lie was a response to the lies the U.S. government had been spreading to the public. Uh, the 70s were a time of turmoil for our country, and I feel like 
he's not wrong. The U.S. government lied about everything from Watergate to what was going on in Vietnam to the oil crisis. Like, it was just an eye-opening experience where Americans were, for the first time, really trying to grapple with something I don't think we've ever gotten a handle on, that we are not the good guys. And uh, so I think it's kind of cool that he, like, pulls... He, like, is using that... He's using the lot like he's intentionally lying to you because that sets up the expectation of the film in a way that I think is like interesting. Hooper said that the film lacks sentimentality and the brutality of things. Uh, Hooper also noted that while watching the local news, the graphic coverage was epitomized by showing spilled brains all over the load. Led him to believe that man was the real monster here, just wearing a different face. So he literally put the mo a mask on the monster in his film. So Leatherface's like human skin face is really like a very pointed and on the nose of men are the real monster. Um, the filming took place in Round Rock, Texas in July of 1973. The conditions on the set were notoriously now known to be very brutal. They shot for 12 to 16 hours, which just sounds like a nightmare, especially with especially with a cast that is, depending on how shots were set up on this movie set, especially with a cast that is so very much like it's two people and then it's like three people and then a two, like there's just probably so much like hanging around in a house that is covered in blood and animal parts and bones in 110 degree heat. Mm, I just can't. Gunnar Hansen, who played Leatherface, recalled that it was 95 to 100 degrees every day during filming. They wouldn't wash my costume because they were worried the laundry might lose it or that they would change color. And they didn't have enough money for a second mushroom. So I wore that mask 12 to 16 hours a day, seven days a week for a month. Just gross. Just, ugh, just gross. <laughs> he and the entire set must have just smelled like the smell is just probably out there. The film was shot on a 16 millimeter Eclair NPR with a very fine grain load speed film. So that really, um, low speed means it requires a lot of light. I think I read somewhere that it require four times as much light as a modern digital camera. That adds to the darkness and a little bit of the graininess that is that makes Texas Chainsaw Massacre iconic but it also means that like when they were flooding that house full of lights that uncooled house in a hundred degree heat with lights they were having to use so much more light to get simple shots which is just, I don't know why you would handicap yourself like that, especially with how hot studio and like lighting is. I mean, it's just a nightmare. The budget's production led to some super unsafe filming conduction, uh, conditions like we've been talking about. Uh, John Duggan's finger, he plays grandpa, was actually slashed. They just slashed his finger uh, when a fake blood effect wouldn't fail and then they like and then they put his blood on the actress who played Sally Hardesty it's just it's not a good scene a real chainsaw with a chain was used while filming it made many actors nervous including the actor William Vale who played I can't think of which one he plays it's Kirk he played Kirk he had to bring that chainsaw within inches of his face that's that's horrifying you shouldn't be putting people through that 
Hooper has admitted to the dangerous and awful set conditioning in the intervening years, noting at a rap party that all cast members had at some level, had some level of injury. Like everybody was hurt making this film. He went on to say during a South by Southwest interview during the 40th anniversary of the film that it was the heaviest set I've ever been on. It was miserable, really. And that added part to the chemistry that caused certain behaviors. The heat, the smoke, the bones are cooking under the hot lights, and everybody hated me by the end of production. And it took years for some of them to cool off. I don't know, like, we, I haven't, like, seen a video of it. I tried to hunt down to see if I could find a video of it. But that isn't something I would be proud of. Uh, just like... I have issues with how how terrible Kubrick was to Shelley Long in The Shining. I have issues with this. There's just, there's absolutely no reason to make a movie this miserable. If it's that you can't get funding, then you've got to figure out like more funding, cut the scope. Like, I'm not saying I don't want Texas Chainsaw Massacre to exist. I'm just saying that like in the 70s, movie sets were a legitimate nightmare. And we are so lucky that sets are safer and actors aren't getting hurt as much. I mean, they still are to probably a more degree than we think, but this set just sounds like terrible. The film was released on October 1st, 1974. For the eight years after, it was released annually to first-run theaters promoted by a full-page ad. That just sounds wild. Like, every year in October, I'm gonna go see Texas Chainsaw Massacre. All of this, all of the re-releases and everything has led to the film making about $30 million. There was, there's some, like, weird stuff with funding and payment on actors in this, uh, getting what they were dessert, like getting paid what they thought they were going to get paid. Um, they gave points out on it, but the problem is, is to fund the film, they had to give 50% of the film away. So that meant that the points that the studio, that the production company was giving actors and cast and crew were actually worth half the value that they were telling them, which is, I don't know, this is pretty shitty. Submitted the motion picture to the MPAA, hoping that it would get a PG rating because at the time there was only PG and it was like G, PG and R and X. Uh, however, when he got it, he thought like, I don't have any gore in this movie. I'm cutting down on the gore. It's expensive and it will give me a PG rating if I don't show the gore, if I imply it. And the MPAA says, no, nah, that's not how that's gonna go down and gives the film an X rating. Several minutes were cut out and it was resubmitted and it received an R. In February, 1976, two theaters in Ottawa, Canada were advised by local police to withdraw the film or face morality charges. Tuxis Chainsaw Massacre was famously banned by the British Board of Censors, so much so. The, the British Board of Censors was so afraid of Texas Chainsaw Massacre that they banned the word chainsaw from movie title. Uh, and Leatherface is arguably one of the origins of the slasher killers we know and love. Like he has so many things that you can see, you can see Carpenter and you can see Craven getting their like, their inspiration from Leatherface. But he is not a slasher in this movie. In, in the sequels coming up that we're gonna talk about, he definitely does become full more slasher, but he is not a slasher in this film. So let's talk about the film itself. Uh, the opening crime scene photos with the camera popping and the sound 
and uh, that cuts into that very slow pan out on that desecrated corpse in the graveyard might be one of the most compelling openings to a horror movie of all time. It's so deliberately and like disgustingly paced and like to most people they are not that camera sound is not a sound that they know it is a very foreign off-putting sound to them he, he does a really great job of using audio and visual to keep you off kilter and I feel like it's one of the things that the sequels try to emulate and they miss it. That effect, that trick was good for, like it's a one trick pony. Once you've seen that and experienced it in that film, like you can't go back to it. <laughs> and I feel like that is one of the things that like many of the sequels and the reboots try to like pull off. Like it's, if it doesn't have the camera and the gruesome violence and those pops of flashes, then it isn't a Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But I don't really think that that scene while impressive and, and iconic really is part of the fabric that makes Texas Chainsaw what it is. We find out and meet our group of kids who are going to be brutally slaughtered when they are in a van on the way to a cemetery where two of the characters, Sally and Franklin Hardesty's grandparents are buried. They're trying to find out because we hear on the radio that graves are being robbed and bodies are being horribly abused and mangled. And so they're on the way to find out that their grandparents are graves are okay. Franklin talks about like his childhood and being this is this like country Texas there by a slaughter farm. And he talks about how they killed animals and they pick up a hike hitchhiker who um, also talks about the slaughterhouse who had, they buy the slaughterhouse. They don't want to pick him up because they're afraid he's going to smell like the slaughterhouse, which is just rude. The hitchhiker gets more agitated and more agitated and it ends with like it climaxes with him setting a photo that they won't buy from him on fire with gunpowder and then cutting Franklin with a straight razor and then he marks their van I mean they're like you got to get out of here this is it it's the end I'm not having this like get out of here like uh the scene is so effective in in setting up not only how like weird the family, which you aren't, which you at this point don't know that the hitchhiker is part of Leatherface's family, but um, setting up how weird the local characters are and kind of how assholey the kids are. Like the kids definitely give off this vibe that they are somehow better than this guy and um it's very weird considering like your family's from here like these are the people your fam like you know what I'm saying like your family is from around here so like how do you throw stones that you are like better than this guy who's working at the slaughterhouse or whatever they're gonna run out of gas because uh Jeff it's not Jeff Jerry because Jerry didn't get gas at a gas station when he should have and um there's no oil it's 1973 so I feel like I think that's another part of the uh, movie that gets lost on modern people. It's 1973. It's right in the middle of the oil crisis. They're like, why is there no gas? Like if a modern audience, why is there no gas? Because there was no gas. You were waiting in line. It was like Hooper describes it at one point in time that he thinks it's going to be the fall of the Western world. That like the oil crisis is just such a huge upheaval. So they don't have any gas, but they do have barbecue. So the kids get a thing of barbecue and head 
to their grandparents' fallen down house, which I just don't understand why why the family left this beautiful house. Maybe that's just the the millennial in me being like, this house is gorgeous. Why did you all just abandon it? Like one of you all could live here. Like, why did you just let it become ruined? And so they're playing around in the house. And this is one of the things where I feel like the playing around in the house, I feel almost like that there needs to be a switch between like the gas and the playing in the house. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it almost feels like in a video game where like you've got like that quest, that main driving urgent quest, but you're off like doing side quests. That kind of feels like what this little section of the movie is. I don't know if it's trying to give us a break or it's trying to be one of those things where you like lull people into a false sense of security and then like slam them over the thing. But it's just one of the things that I find like maybe if I didn't know they were going to, they were like, cause they were super pressed about the gas until they get to the house. And then they're like laughing and like talking, telling stories about each other and leaving Franklin out of all of it because he can't go upstairs in the wheelchair. It's just like a minor thing that bugs me about this. So after that, Pam and Kirk are headed to the creek or the watering hole to cool off because it's super hot. And they see a house and they hear a gas powered engine so they go to the house and that's when the killing begins pam and frank are sitting on the thing pam is pam just wants to go she's like doesn't want to be here she's like they're not going to give us gas kirk like what are you even talking about like he's got this whole scheme like i'm going to give him money and my guitar and then we'll come back and i'll give him more money and they can give me back my guitar and she's just like not she doesn't find it particularly compelling and then kirk commits a home invasion and we get the first kill and probably my favorite kill of the uh movie which is leatherface comes out he hits Kirk in the head with a sledgehammer, which does not kill him. And so he has to hit him again. He pulls his body through the door and slams the metal door closed. I, I think this kill is so great in the way that it parallels how Franklin was talking about how they killed cows in the slaughterhouse just 20 minutes earlier in this movie, right? Leatherface does the same thing to kill Kirk. And then we see Pam, she comes inside. She's like, why is he doing? She finds the strange room full of bones and chickens and people tied to chairs and the weird uh, bone settee that is in there. And then she's grabbed by Leatherface and in another very much like people are cattle moment, uh, he hangs her on that hook. And it's super disturbing and very bloodless, but it's one of the most like get your heart racing kind of moments in horror for me. So then we get back to the van. Everybody's like, where did Pam and Kirk go? Jerry's impatient and he's like, I'm going to go like find them. And like Sally doesn't really want to go. She thinks they should stay by the van. And Franklin definitely doesn't want to go. He doesn't want to go anywhere. He just wants to go back to that gas station, see if they have gas and get out. But no, Jerry heads off finds the house and is pretty quickly dispatched. The next thing that happens, I think is a very good thing. We see sunset and it's now night and we are back at the van with Sally and Franklin who are fighting in a way that only siblings can. Sally is saying she won't leave without Jerry and Franklin is just like, we need to get in the car. We need to go back to the gas station and we need to find help, find civ like. We just do not need to be rolling around the backwoods of Texas at night 
with one flashlight. Franklin finds that Jerry took the keys with him, which is a real dick move. (laughs) Jerry, way to be a dick. That seals Sally leaving. So Sally is pushing Franklin through the woods. They come directly into contact with Leatherface, like bang straight into him. And this is really the only kill in the movie that I would say is anything like a slasher because it is, while still on Leatherface's like home turf, it isn't in his house. It doesn't have the like invading quality that the other three kills in this movie have had so far where it is people coming into Leatherface's house. It is, it is him going out into the wilds around his house to protect it. And that feels a little bit more slashery, though not even really, because slashers are really just like advanced stalker movies in a little bit, like extreme hyperbolic stalker movies for the most part. This movie has like the bones of a home invasion film. It turns them on the head by making the home invaders like the real villain. But I feel like it's like one of the first times we see that trick. It's employed in other films. Don't Breathe does that to good effect. Um, I feel like the those two are the best examples of home invasion, but what if the person we invaded is a villain? So the killing portion of the film is over when Franklin is murdered brutally with the chainsaw in his wheelchair as Sally runs away. And that there's still 20 minutes of this movie left, and they are arguably the best 20 minutes of this film. Uh, Sally is thrust into the madness of this family. Uh, The scenes are very dark and funny in ways that I don't know if was, that I don't know if it was played to be intentionally funny. Uh, Hooper goes on to make Texas Chainsaw Massacre to a dark comedy, like with that intent. It's another piece of the puzzle. I think that sequels and reboots don't have a grasp on. The Sawyer's weirdness and their family dynamic and structure, especially in these last like 20 minutes where they're trying to like get grandpa to kill her, uh, trying to like, we find out that the, the car, that the gas station is actually one of the family members. Like all of those things are, are to me something that is part of the fingerprint of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the intricacy of how the family dynamic works and how they each have their own part in how this scheme, for lack of a better word, works, right? Like each of them have a part to play, even Leatherface. And today the plan did not go as, as as it was meant to go and Leatherface is having a pretty bad day with all these people just fucking busting in on him. But in this last 20 minutes, we also see the birth of another trope that that will define slashers. And that is the final girl circuit. Uh, Before, we have two of them. Before, the second one really isn't the circuit. But before we meet the family and grandpa and all of that, Sally is like running and she's like trying to get away and she finds a house and she thinks that she can get in it. And she runs in the house and runs upstairs, has to jump out a window. Uh, Leatherface destroys the door, which leads to one of my favorite lines, which when the cook comes back, he's like, look what your brother did to the door. Doesn't he have pride in his home? <laughs> which I just think is hilarious that he's just mad that uh, Leatherface has destroyed the door to their home. Sally, like every final girl to come after her, 
outsmarts them, gets away, runs off. She breaks three, but not before looping another person into the deranged night events. A trucker is there. They hop in the truck. He's like scratching up his truck with a chainsaw. And in a puzzling move, they get out of the truck. Leatherface is chasing them. And the trucker throws uh, a wrench and hits Leatherface in the face. And it causes the only really discernible effect in the movie, which is where the chainsaw goes down on his leg. And then we see him limping around with that deranged shot of the film where Leatherface is swinging his chainsaw around in the Texas morning light. And Sally is holding on to the back of the truck, drenched in blood screaming. Yeah, that's, that's where, uh, that's where Texas Chainsaw Massacre leaves us that's going to do it for this week's episode uh next week we will be talking about the 1986 it's more than a decade later uh toby hooper comes back to texas chainsaw massacre and this one is a banger guys it has icon genre bill mosley in it he's so good and i can't he's super funny and it's got dennis hopper of all people texas chainsaw massacre is a banging series for starting people's careers uh the narrator in the beginning of the film is john larroquette in his first role uh next week we're gonna see dennis hopper who it's not his first role bill mosley is it Mosley's? It's Bill Mosley's second role. Chop Chop is his second role. And then he just goes on from there to be the a that guy of horror and sci-fi. And uh, I love it for him and all of us because he's a treasure. So that's going to do it for this week. I'm your ghost dispenser. You can find me all over the internet as Miss Nintendeek64. You can find this show on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube as a Halloween Club. I've got movie reviews and horror games going up on the channel sometime in the coming week, so please be sure to subscribe. Also, don't forget to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And as always, darlings, sleep or don't. Thank you.